Thank you. Good, um, good afternoon. And thank you very much, Alexis, for inviting me today and everyone for coming to hear me. So, um, as Sasha says, I'm currently um, uh, in my first year of a PhD looking at the institution known as the London Family Hospital. Um, I'm looking at how it was created, maintained, supported and experienced and what impact it had both within the metropolis and nationally. One of the questions I hope to answer is how the institution built its reputation. My paper today looks at one aspect that I'm exploring, whether in order to define itself as an authoritative institution, the hospital governors needed to prove and communicate their expertise, including the health and welfare of children. Today I'm considering the role of women in this process, who they were and how they contributed. Specifically, I'm looking at elite women, the matrons, the women, inspectors, and the nurses. Women were very important um, at, in the history of the hospital. Elite women were crucial of, uh, as funding campaigners and benefactors. They were particularly important supporting the building of the hospital chapel. Women were identified as visitors. You can see a few on the screen here. Um, and um, uh, both to fundraising events such as concerts and sermons, and of course they were uh, mothers bringing children. They were also predominant as workers in the hospital, as matrons, nurses, school mistresses, cooks and long dresses. Among the hospital's external networks, women worked as inspectors and nurses, and some even ran a small branch hospital in Barnet. So I'm going to start with a short introduction to the family hospital, and then briefly review some of the relevant historiography relating to the children's health and welfare. After a brief comment about sources, the main part of my paper uh, will look at how ideas on health and welfare were exchanged. I will, uh, I will start with a brief look at how the hospital governor sought advice from, for its official regulations before looking at the role women played in advising the governors. I'll look at which classes of women generated their opinions, what sort of advice they gave, and where known how this was communicated and received. So the London Family Hospital, which you can see here, interestingly, it's actually the same uh, architect as the Hasler, so it's quite interesting to see that on the screen, both um, Theobald uh, Jacobson. Um, the hospital was the dying project of Thomas Corham, a retired merchant and shipbuilder. It took almost 20 years to raise the necessary support, and it was elite women who was at the forefront of the campaign. Once several ladies of quality and distinction had signed a supporting petition giving public approval to Corham's scheme, another petition of supporting men began. By 1739, a royal charter was granted by George II and the hospital opened in 1741. Initially in temporary accommodation, a large hospital building was completed by 1752. That's obviously this one here. The institution was managed by committees of governors who ranged from aristocrats and gentry to what we might now term professional middle classes, lawyers, MPs, merchants, physicians. And in its first 15 years, fewer than 1,500 children were admitted. Then, with parliamentary support, an open-door policy known as general reception was implemented, when over a four-year period, 15,000 children came through its doors. So that was just through four years. When that ended in 1760, admissions were once again restricted and uh, for the next 60 years, the total uh, for the whole of that time was about uh, 2,000. In addition to the main building in London, to cope with the children taken in during general reception, six branch hospitals were opened temporarily. 
There was also a network of provincial inspectors who oversaw the nurses who looked after the infant families. The hospital was now officially in the art collection and its musical performances, Brian Hogarth and George Frederick Handel were two of its most famous supporters. And the institution continues today as the Charity Quorum and the Family Museum, both situated in Brunswick Square, London, just across the flyer, where I work sometimes. Uh, the purpose of this paper, I'll be focusing on the hospital during the 18th century. So there's a growing historiography related to the family hospital, and I'm just going to mention some of the important texts specifically related to today's paper. There's general histories of the hospital, such as those by R.H. Nichols and F.A. Ray, Ruth McClure and Gillian Pugh, who all provide an overview of how the institution and its networks functioned. Both Alicia Levine and Gillian Clark provide more in-depth analysis of the system of inspectors and nurses, while Ashley Matheson and Claire Marie Rene have looked at how the governors tried both innovative and traditional practices in order to treat medical problems within the institution. The primary sources for the family hospital have been described, described as vast and labyrinthine. Housed in the London Metropolitan Archives, their survival has been dependent on the fact that they were maintained in continual single ownership by the institution since it began in 1739. Some of the most useful archives include the committee records and the correspondence, much of which is from the provincial inspectors. Ignored for decades, increased interest in these archives means sections are frequently becoming unavailable for conservation reasons. Plans are now in place, depending on funding, to have some of the archive digitised. In fact, their medical uh, records are some of the first ones they're doing. In addition, for my research, I'm also exploring references to the hospital in newspapers and magazines and other published reports. The hospital frequently advertised its activities in the newspapers, which, where it was also praised and criticised. Frequently, it sought public opinion and occasionally had to respond when things went wrong. So to understand healthcare at the hospital, I'm going to begin with the male governors um, and the medics role. So Sir Hans Sloan and Dr Richard Lee, both shown here, were both hospital governors, but also two of the most fashionable physicians of the day. So it's not surprising their opinion was frequently sought by the uh, governing committees. There were three levels of committee, the court, the general and the subcommittee. The court met four times a year and was open to anyone accepted as a governor or guardian. From this group, 62 men were annually elected to form a general committee. They were involved in the general running of the institution and met every week or fortnight. Sometimes they consisted of only eight members. The subcommittee could meet weekly or was set up for specific business on an ad hoc basis. This committee frequently consisted of only two or three members. Although some physicians such as Dr. Mead served as general committee members, others gave medical advice only if asked or when required. So Dr. Mead, with Dr. Mead, advised what medicines the hospital would keep in store, and Sir Hans Sloan advocated the medical benefits of breastfeeding. I think they were thinking of getting uh, dry nurses in. Uh, they thought it would be cheaper, and, and Sir Hans Sloan told them it wasn't so good. they would have had little to offer in terms of treatment. As Roy Porter and others have argued, there was sometimes little difference in expertise between a university-trained physician and a quack. However, there's little doubt that such learned individuals associated the institution with knowledge and authority. 
Though such advice was important, there needed to be other staff who physically provided medical care for the families. Chief amongst these were the apothecary, who prepared medicines on the advice of physicians. Initially, this involved a daily hospital visit until 1759, when a Robert McClellan became the first resident apothecary. I think he stayed till 1797. Uh, the apothecary was assisted by the chief nurse or matron, who was initially the only woman permitted to administer medicines, while other care was provided by nurses. And as we can see, I hope you can read that. Um, as we can see from this published account of the hospital from 1740, the nurses were initially employed to live in and ensure the children were appropriately fed and clothed. In 1756, the regulation stated the nurses had to be without a family, under 40 years of age, and had already had smallpox. Most of the nurses seemed to have been taken on through recommendation. Some began at the hospital as wet nurses, and some were foundlings. As we can see in this page from the staff book of around 1762, the infirmary nurses were paid at the same level as the laundry maid at £6 annually, significantly higher than the £4 for the scullery maid, but less than a schoolmistress who earned £10 a year. But it was not just hospital staff and governors concerned with family care. In 1748, a doctor Cadogan of Bristol wrote to the hospital advising on what he considered the best way to rear young children. Cadogan's opinion was that women generally were too indulgent with infants, cramming them with cakes, sweetmeats, etc., and wrapping them up in too many clothes. He recommended a more rational approach by men of sense. His advice was accepted as an official practice, and then Cadogan was made a governor. The hospital did not, of course, just concern itself with preventative care for infants, but had to deal with a range of acute problems, fevers, diarrhoea, fits, measles, smallpox, etc., Printed regulations show that all nurses were also expected to care for families' spiritual and moral well-being. Nurses had to ensure children behaved appropriately, specifically not to use bad language, and teach them to say their prayers. The nurses themselves could be dismissed without warning if they too did not act appropriately. Printed directives were one method used as a professional instruction to communicate ideas to senior nurses and inspectors, who might then advise junior nurses verbally. As Cadogan's opinion was also published as an essay upon nursing for sale, it was available to all, not just those connected to the institution and for an affordable sixpence. Over the following 25 years, the essay was published in 10 editions and translated into several languages. So as we've seen, the governors officially sought and communicated advice from male practitioners, but they also acknowledged women's traditional role in the care and management of children. It is this I shall turn to now, and which reveals less orthodox means of exchange, where women were central to the generation and communication of knowledge. As this published report of the General Committee from 1740 showed, the governors were happy to accept advice from women in person, in writing, and even anonymously by a memorandum in the charity box. Whilst we might expect this instruction to have been addressed to the ladies of quality and fashion who visited the hospital, the archival evidence also suggests the governors listened to a much wider range of women throughout the period of the discussion. So in order to explore further these women, to advise experts, I've divided them into four groups, the elite women, the matrons, the inspectors and the nurses, and I've included the nurses in the country as well as in the hospital itself. So Lady Vere was one of the elite women from whom several letters survive. In this example, she describes a visit she made to the hospital with her sister, Lady Temple. 
She writes how when playing with one of the children, a living creature was discovered crawling on the head of a little girl. Lady Vere reported her dissatisfaction when the nurse complained it was impossible to keep the children clean. The letter is undated, but as Mrs. Tompkins was matron during, during the early 1750s, it must have been have originated from that period. Although Lady Beer's complaint is written to the governors, it describes how she spoke directly to the matron and the nurse. The governor's response has not yet been found, but as Lady Beer and her sister were both wives of hospital vice presidents, it seems certain the situation would have been closely monitored. Initially, there was a single matron who was ultimately responsible for the care of the girls, the infants, and the female staff. She had to be under 50 years of age and with no dependent family of her own. She lived in the hospital, so presumably could have been called on 24 hours a day, every day. When infant numbers increased from the period of general reception, specialist infirmary matrons and nurses were also employed. But even with specialist nursing staff, the physicians, surgeons and apothecary were still the authority regarding the overall management of sick families. However, while the men came and went, the nurses lived along with the children on the wards. When sickness was rife and the senior staff busy, the nurses may have been left to cope on their own. And it's when things went wrong that we get a better insight into the specifics of daily nursing practices. So as we can see in these subcommittee minutes from February 1763, the nurses' lack of cleanliness was blamed for continuing problems after children had been treated for the itch, an unidentified infectious skin condition. There are no specifics as to what the nurses had been doing, only that they had failed to keep the children sufficiently clean. And as you can see, they were then given very specific instructions to ensure the children were completely redressed in clean clothes and provided with washed and fumigated bed linen. It's frequently recorded that the subcommittee routinely visited the ward, so it's possible this order was given verbally directly to the matron, if not the nurses themselves. Now, Hannah Johnson was the general matron during a period of financial difficulty when several cost-cutting decisions had to be made. We found out quite a bit about it for the quantum decision. This included the installation of a new kitchen in 1796 that increased efficiency and saved on fuel. In order to publicly demonstrate their modernising approach, her, the hospital governors published Hannah Johnson's report in the newspaper, naming her as the author. Um, it indicates how the committee respected Matron's opinion on what was a technological innovation, albeit relating to a domestic matter, the preparation of food. I wonder if Mrs Johnson's name was used to appeal to other women running kitchens in large houses or institutions. As stated previously, as well as the main hospital, the committees also re relied on a network of inspectors, male and female, in the provinces. The governors advertised for ladies and gentlemen of easy fortunes and humane dispositions. The inspectors had to employ, pay and instruct the nurses who looked after the infant families. Some inspectors were minor gentry, but many more were typically merchants or similar. For many inspectors, all we know is that they were literate, understood accounts and were financially sound as the post was voluntary. Hannah Aldworth, shown here, might be considered typical of a lady inspector. She was 66 when she began, was the daughter of a brewer and widow of a grocer. On her death, she bequeathed £800 for almshouses in the parish of Newbury, Berkshire, where she lived. 
The amount of detail in correspondence from inspectors can vary significantly. In Julian Clark's case study of the Berkshire correspondence, most of the letters written by the most of the letters written by the inspectors, male and female, are to the male hospital secretarial clerk. But occasionally letters are written to the matron, frequently, though not exclusively, when requesting clothing or more children for their nurses, as there's an example there. These letters come from an otherwise identified Mrs. Birch of Abingdon. What they reveal is that the use of an apothecary was for her only for emergency situations. Christopher Lawrence, in his Medicine in the Making of Modern Britain, describes how advice from a neighbour with knowledge of herbal properties or the local parson or squire's wife might be the only expertise available in small communities. And as we can see in another letter by Mrs. Birch, when she feels a little boy's life is in danger, she requests urgent advice from the hospital physician. What's not clear is whether this would have been normal practice for Mrs. Birch or only because she was a hospital inspector. An important consideration is that the institution would have been paying for the apothecaries or physicians' advice when it related to their families. But interestingly, Mrs. Birch also reminded the government of women's traditional role in childcare. She writes how Thomas Barton, who the apothecary had given up on, was returned to strength through simple diligence and care. Unfortunately, I've been unable to assess the government's response as outgoing letter books from this date are unavailable due to conservation issues. Whilst it might be expected that the governors would respond to advice from these upper and middling classes of women, there's also evidence they responded to requests from the country nurses themselves. <coughs> the subcommittee minutes of 1741 recorded lists of supplies sent to the infant families for use by their country nurses. Included were items of clothing, a brush, a comb, feeding equipment. Then a note is added that the hospital will also supply an ounce of cinnamon at the desire of the nurses. It indicates that the country nurses, seemingly as a collective, successfully made an appeal for this extra item. At present, I do not know if the request came by a matron or an inspector, or even what the cinnamon was for, though I'm assuming it was medicinal. We know the country nurses did travel and lodge together when they came to collect children. They could well have discussed their concerns with each other to put to matron at the hospital. And finally, it should be noted that throughout the period under investigation, the hospital governors were frequently involved in experiments and innovations to reduce the mortality rates of the children, often in the hope that it would be of national benefit. One such experiment took place in 1763 to sweeten the air in the infirmary, hoping it would improve the health of the children. Unfortunately, sickness levels remained unchanged, but by infusing the air with pleasant-smelling herbs, the conditions in the infirmary were improved. This came from the report of the infirmary nurses to the gentlemen of the subcommittee. The minutes confirmed that the governors visited the infirmary, spoke to the nurses and recorded their opinion. So in conclusion, as we see, it's the male governors and staff who communicated official procedures and advice about the care of families, both within the hospital, through its network of inspectors and even to the public at large. This was dispersed through published reports, correspondence, but also verbally. I would argue that by communicating with the public, the governors were legitimising their authority as generators of expert knowledge. However, despite accepting Dr Cadagan's opinion that the children's welfare should undergo rational investigation, the governors actively sought, at least initially, and accepted advice from women of all classes, written and verbal, elite women to country nurses. 
As we've seen in the case of Matron Johnson's published report of the kitchen, the governors may even have been using her name to speak directly to other similar women and thereby acknowledging her domestic expertise. Usefully, the hospital archives reveal women of all classes communicating between themselves, mainly through correspondence, but also documenting otherwise hidden verbal exchange. Given that my thesis seeks to explore the metropolitan and national impacts of the family hospital, I'd welcome comments as to how I might assess any response to the Governor's published reports on childcare, in particular given the longevity of Dr Cadogan's report, if there were possible sources or approaches I might use when assessing who may have read it. Thank you very much for listening.